0: Welcome to the Vegan Family Kitchen podcast. And it's going to be nice and warm and cozy today as I welcome a couple of bakers into my kitchen. Welcome to Natasha and Ed Patton. I'm so glad to have you here today. Hello, Brigitte. We're really happy to be here.
1: Yeah, thanks for having us.
0: It's wonderful to have you. You are the uh, founders of this wonderful bakery in Whistler, Canada called Bread, which is offering beautiful um, plant-based vegan baked goods and breads and loaves and sourdough and all the wonderful stuff and you are here today because you have just and if you can show it to us you've just published this beautiful book called bread (laughs) there it is right above you uh, where you share your magic and we are going to talk about that today how we can at home um, do better baking um, in a plant-based cruelty-free way and um, I'm so excited to have you. That's fantastic. And to start with, um, you know, I, I'm always uh, shocked at how deeply we have come as a society to associate baking and animal products, in particular eggs, and to some extent dairy. But even in, in my work every day, I have to look for, for pictures of food to use in my content. And if you look for pictures of baking, there's always stupid eggs in there. And um, the thing, that, the reason I say stupid is because it's not even necessary. A lot of the time, eggs and dairy are added to all sorts of products. So I would love to know about your approach, how we can make baking plant based. Is it really that difficult?
1: As, I mean, baking in general, I wouldn't isn't easy. Like we spoke before the show, you know, making a soup, for example, you can be a little bit more, you know, freestyle and grow some things in there, but it's definitely a bit, a little bit more precise. And we do, like you said, rely on animal products. So it's coming out of our comfort zone. Um, and that's where our book comes in to give people the knowledge, um, and tips and tricks to help people to know what to, you know, replace certain animal ingredients with. Um, but I definitely agree. Like eggs aren't necessary for all baking, but especially sort of cakes and things like that. It can be replaced quite easily. We use um, organic flaxseed, uh, linseed that we buy whole and blend um, weekly, so it's nice and fresh. Um, it's very sustainable being a seed. It's a whole whole food. Um, and we just mix that with some plant milk like oat milk or soy milk um, and that is a great emulsifier to use for a lot of baking sweetbreads cakes cookies Um, so yeah it can be done but it's just sort of giving people that knowledge um, and the confidence to to incorporate that into their baking
0: tell me a little bit more you've mentioned the emulsifying function so let's backtrack a little bit and talk about how come those animal products have been kind of the go-to previously like what are the functions that they serve and how do we replace those in the home kitchen with plants instead
1: Mm -hmm. do you want to answer that natasha
2: well when you look at an egg um it has a number of functions it can perform it can be a binder we found that using whole foods such as chia seed, flaxseed, or psyllium husks, um, they also contain lots of amigas, so similar to an egg. Their composition is similar. I often wonder if it's because the chickens are fed a lot or they eat a lot of seeds in their diet, and that's why the eggs contain so much of that anyway. But we can find, if you think about a, a chia seed or a flaxseed, a seed is ultimately an egg from a plant Um, so of course it has similar properties it's it's a kind of egg from nature so you can actually use these um, seeds grind them up Um, we find that grinding your own so that's freshly ground um, is better than buying store-bought ground but if you can't grind them if you don't have a spice grinder then um, store-bought ground will be okay but the freshness the flavor and maybe the the function it performs, the binding will be better if it's fresh. Um, and we found that other properties eggs have, um, are to aerate things. For example, in a mousse, um, aquafaba, again, it comes from a seed, essentially a chickpea It's the, the liquid that the beans are cooked in. Um, you can use that, you can reduce it down if you make your own at home, or you can just use it straight out of a can and that is great for making meringues and adding a lightness to cakes and things so there are a number of different things that eggs do sometimes you might want to replace a whole egg there are also amazing new products on the market uh one of the brands that we mention in our book is just egg a vegan liquid egg it's made out of mung beans again one of nature's seeds so these products can you can use them in like one. We have a recipe in the book. It's um, a lemon tart or tart citron. And this traditionally is very heavy in eggs and cream. And with the just egg or any other vegan liquid egg, you, you can replicate this like for like. So we don't tend to use those types of liquid um, substitutes that are made um, in the bakery. We tend to use more whole foods in our kitchen. But uh, we're not against them. I mean, ethically, they are... Better than harming animals. And, um, you know, mung beans are considered like a very healthy food. So I don't think that there's anything too, too, too much to be concerned about with the processing of that type of uh, ingredient. Um, although processed foods do have a really bad uh, connotation. And I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about that as well. Um, Some people I know are very adverse to eating anything that's processed, but when I told them that bacon was actually a processed food, they were kind of very confused by that, you know, and likewise, a smoothie is a processed food. You know, you take a fruit, you smash it up and you put it through some kind of process. So there's a lot of education that we hope to convey in the book about using plants um, and eating in a healthier way. And a lot of baked products are, you know, generally not that healthy. They do contain lots of fats and things. Um, our book is kind of balanced. We have some very healthy breads and things in there that you can make. And then we also have some treats in there because our book is not really a health book. It is baking in a cruelty free way in a more environmentally friendly way. Um, so it's hard to be healthy with all of the types of recipes that we wanted to include. Um, but we definitely say, you know, these are treats to be eaten in moderation, occasionally for special occasions.
0: I like, um, I think it's in Food Rules, Michael Pollan's book, where he says um, it's not exactly that, um, you know, you don't want to forego of uh, treats, you know, baked goods entirely, but just eat the ones you make yourself, you know, and yes. that will definitely slow you down a little bit. Compared to just going to the coffee shop and having a a, a delicious but sometimes quite heavy on the oil um, muffin, right? So there is there's mm-hmm. got to be some some balance there. Um, we've talked about eggs a lot, but what about milk? What is the best the best milk for baking?
1: Um, yeah, like I mentioned before, our favorites that we use are probably oat milk. First of all, um, being in Canada. Um, We can access organic oats. Um, We love them because they're self-pollinating, so um, they don't need any bees to be shipped in, and they use very little water as well um, in the growing of the oats. So that's our sort of go-to. We have a great company based in Vancouver that we use. So again, locally supporting local. And then my next go-to would be a soy milk. for sort of gluten-free baking is great and also because it's high in protein it makes really good uh, buttermilk so you can just add some acid uh, like lemon juice or apple cider vinegar just a very small amount if you add that you'll see instantly it thickens um, and that can be used for for muffins for cornbread um, pancakes waffles things like that um, so you can you can make it yourself and instantly you'll see it you know, you leave it for five minutes and it's ready to go. So they would be my two main ones that we would use. But we also use coconut milk in certain things, certain cakes. Um, we make our own chai tea at the bakery. Um, so we like to use coconut milk for that with some nice spices, um, organic sugar, and black tea. So, yeah, there's there's definitely plant milks. So I feel like there's more and more in the market. They're becoming cheaper, which is great to see. Um, and more accessible you know most shops cafes will always have a plant option
0: and when it comes Making to creams, your oh sorry natasha go ahead sorry
2: i was just going to say when it comes to creams um you want to go for a nut that's quite fatty so almond cashew and then also coconut um you can get some very rich creamy thick textures just from using those types of ingredients we don't need full fat dairy milk to have that kind of pleasure from a a cream cake or something um and these are whole foods as well so although they are high in fat um
0: in eaten in moderation they are quite healthy for you and definitely in every way a better choice than heavy cream from a cow Mm -hmm. um you know we can skip skip the middle cow skip the middle chicken you know i had never thought about that with the chickens eat well it's true they eat Yeah, Definitely. And I'm almost sure, not 100% certain, that um, omega trees are often um, added also to the... Omega trees from the ocean, from uh, fish, is often added to uh, chicken meal. I'll double check on that. But I I don't know that they uh, quite produce as much as you can find Mm -hmm. on their own, you know? Um, What about making your own plant milk? At home, would you advise trying that for baking? I would
2: advise trying that, um, especially if you're on a budget, because the price of plant milk in the store is extortionate compared to what it costs you to make at home. I once costed out a liter of oat milk homemade; it cost me about forty cents Canadian, um, whereas it's probably going to cost me four or five dollars if I go to the store and buy that. the The downfall with making your own plant milks is they tend to separate. So they're great if you're, um, let's say making a smoothie where you're gonna whiz everything together and it kind of holds for a while. Um, But if you're adding like your plant milk to a coffee, you tend to notice that it splits quite easily. So the great thing about store-bought versions is that they've added in emulsifiers to prevent that from happening. Um, However, there is even a difference on the store-bought milk. We found that like the barista blends they're designed to be foamed on an espresso machine whereas the kind of everyday type ones tend to um actually hold up better and not split um because they're not designed to be foamed and they actually don't foam up as well if you're if you're using it on an espresso machine um so it's again it, it's it's good to do it and, it and for some recipes and things that you're doing with the plant milk um home can be better like i like making um raw soups for our lunches sometimes and i'll use like a homemade almond milk and i like to sprout the almonds too so i get maximum nutritional benefit from those we're very into sprouting we have some sprouted recipes in the cookbook as well oh nice Um, and again it's a very cost efficient way to get nutrients into your diet if you do your own sprouting at home so um you know they can work well but again it comes down to what kind of recipe you're doing and I have found that the store bought ones can be a little bit more effective because they've got the emulsifiers added and they also add more vitamins to them usually as well. They fortify them with B12 and D3 sometimes. So you know, it can be good to get the store bought ones. I think a mix of both is
0: probably okay. Thank you for that. That's really helpful. While we're on the topic of choosing ingredients, you mentioned to me that you have a strong preference for choosing organic ingredients and that's been a big part of your commitment. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? For us, it's the vegan choice uh, because veganism in essence is
2: living a life that is free from suffering and cruelty to other beings as much as possible. Now, if we're spraying fields of monoculture wheat with glyphosate which is a toxic pesticide do you think pesticide it kills pests but if it, if we consume enough of it or other animals consume enough of it um, then it's going to kill us and that's essentially what what these sprays do they shorten our life expectancy they they lead people that live close to them or use them on a daily basis in their work they they tend to have increased health problems so we don't want that so we we believe that for a more healthful agricultural system, we should be using organic, but we understand it it can be too expensive for some people. And the only way that the price is going to come down really is if there's a demand for it and um, the government start to give more subsidies to organic vegetable growers as well, which we're not seeing at the moment, unfortunately. So we do advocate for organic, but we are sympathetic to families who perhaps are living on a budget. Um, And in that case, I think the message is
0: as organic as possible. Speaking of which, I am very curious, and this will be a question that's more interesting for people that live on the West Coast of Canada. Where do you get your grains? What are your favorite suppliers of of flour of wheat and
1: oats and other products that you use um so predominantly we use a mill um, called anitas which is about it's actually the closest mill to us here in whistler it's just around 200 kilometers away um and there most of the grain is is there are some grown in bc but predominantly it's grown more sort of the central provinces of canada um and then shipped out from there to various mills. But obviously then they're milling it fresh and, and getting it to to us. So predominantly we buy from from an eater's. Um and then we also buy from a couple of other mills um based um in Ontario um and then it's shipped out from from there. Um but again it's all Canadian, all organic. Um so we really strive for that. And then we buy some whole grains that we mill ourselves. Um, for more sort of special breads that we make or, um, cookies or things like sweetbreads, um, we buy that from Armstrong, which is in BC. It's about five hours away from us, um, fieldstone organics they're called, and they have a great selection and they even have some really nice ancient grains like einkorn, uh, Emma, um, a really nice one. It's not an ancient grain, but it's called triticale and it's a hybrid of wheat and rye um and i've actually found over the last few years that sprouts um really nicely once you just soak the grain in cold water for 24 hours to soften it um it takes about 3 to 4 days and it's really nice sprouted um and you can put that through your through your dough through your sourdough um and it adds great texture and um nutrient value so
0: you're uh, i'm i'm not much of a baker so bear with me so you, you sprout the the greens and then you mm. mix them like with the sprout, like you don't dry them. First. No, you, you put the you, living you, thing in yeah. in the dough. Absolutely. Cool. So it's
1: almost going on like boosting that fermentation within the dough. So once you fully mix the dough and you've um, developed the gluten, you would just gently sort of mix through the, the sprouted grain or seed um, through that dough and then continue the normal fermentation you would do and then shape it um and pop the, pop the dough in the fridge overnight for the sort of slow cold fermentation. Um, as you would for yeah.
0: like raisins or Yeah,
1: exactly. Chip and yeah, a muffin. just makes We we call them um sort of incorporations or things like that. Um inclusions. inclusions we add sort of after like I said after we've developed the gluten. If you try and mix that in straight away, it just makes the sort of mixing stage a little uh, more difficult and time consuming. So best to add those at the end of that mix stage
2: but you can sprout grains um dehydrate them then grind them and then you get a sprouted flour we don't tend to do that i mean that's quite a lengthy process but we have bought sprouted flowers from anita's mill they have a great range mm-hmm. of sprouted flowers and then you could double up you could do sprouted flour bread wow. with incorporated sprouted grains in there um and that would be you know an nutritional overload, probably, <laughs> if there's such yeah,
0: Wow, that would be deluxe. <laughs> that what? would be like a double sprouted kind of loaf, yeah. <laughs> very, very nice. Well, I, I hope uh, some people will get inspired to do that. I have another somewhat technical questions, but again, as the person who likes to improvise, I, I'm the girl who cannot follow a recipe, not because I can't follow a recipe, but because I don't want to, or I always have ingredients that I want to add in. And I do um, have an interest in those ancient grains or the kinds of grains that you don't find quite so often. And so when I find some, a bag of teff flour or whatnot, you know, at Famous Foods, where is a, a grocery store in Vancouver, where there's really every ingredient that is a weird ingredient, they have it. Um, so some, once in a while, I will buy something out of curiosity, but of course, I don't necessarily have a recipe that's that I know and trust to go with it. I'm like, oh, maybe I can just replace, you know, this other flower with it. So do you have any tips to help me in my experimentation if I want to branch out into different flowers to incorporate them? And let's start with the easy stuff, you know, not so much necessarily sourdough, but things like muffins and, and bread and things like that. How are sure. the ways we can diversify our grains a little bit?
1: Yeah, I mean, we've, we've tried to include that in the the cookbook. Um, like Natasha mentioned earlier, you know, there's some recipes, for example, that might use macadamia nuts or pine nuts. You know, these are quite sort of luxury nuts mm-hmm. to use. But, uh, you know, if you, you, want, you have some, you know, walnuts or peanuts or something that you want to use up, Absolutely you could supplement them for another nut, or the same with dried fruits spices if there's a spice in a recipe you know and you prefer um, allspice or nutmeg or you have that in your cupboard and you don't have some some cinnamon or or you know you don't like cinnamon, for example, you can absolutely sort of like change them up it's it's again obviously thinking of how strong that spice is you know you wouldn't want to switch out cayenne pepper for paprika because you'd have a pretty spicy scone or (laughs) or bread so i think it's looking at the strength of the spice if you were to do that um or or the fruit dried fruits nuts they're easily replaceable herbs um and again additives like to breads and things you can totally chop and change there's a bit of freedom there i think it's best to keep sort of dry like flowers Um, similar amount I wouldn't start chopping and changing them but absolutely if we're talking about a gluten-free all-purpose flour to chickpea flour for example those ones could could be substituted quite easily okay Um, but it's, it's again it's a little bit of trial and error maybe make it once to the recipe so you know what the texture consistency should look like and then it will give you sort of that confidence to switch it out on the on the the next time you make it
0: and i have seen also a lot of recipes with almond flour and that's something i haven't really done myself if me because of the cost of almond flour um mm-hmm. is that also something that can be substituted
1: um yeah i mean almond meal um again it's that sort of textual thing um you could probably find sort of a coconut meal that would give you the same sort of texture and consistency um Again, if you buy, potentially, if you buy sort of whole nuts and put them in your food processor, you could probably save some cost there as well.
2: But it might not have uh, an equal distribution in terms of how, you know, when you you grind almonds in a food processor, you tend to find a dust at the bottom and then Mm -hmm. more chunky pieces on top. Mm -hmm. So you need for... A better quality bake you want to have the grains kind of a similar size mm-hmm. so it's a bit more consistent um but i mean so you can do it at home i've certainly ground up almonds to make when i've had a recipe haven't got almond meal or the store didn't have almond meal or for whatever reason i couldn't get it so i did make my own with ground nuts but then you just have to sort of know that it won't be quite as good as if you could get the real meal
0: for sure well, so if someone who's listening here has been a reasonably practical, somewhat experienced baker, uh, but wants to branch out into going into full-on plant-based baking, what would be your your suggestions for them to get started? I
1: think keep it keep it simple. Um, like cakes and things like that can be easily replaced, like we talked about earlier, using. Um, aquafaba for meringues it might be a little bit of an adjustment but generally the techniques are the same um, and we did a lot of trial and error with the recipes in our books we wanted to make sure that the recipes had been tested and tasted by different people so we could get feedback um, i've had a lot of recipe books in the past that i followed you know to the exact to the t and it hasn't quite worked so i'm pretty confident in our recipes that they have worked so I think it's just having an open mind when you're switching. I, I wasn't always vegan. I was a chef a long time before I went vegan. So it was sort of giving yourself time and just try out, try out different recipes with an open mind.
0: I did not ask you this question, but I am curious now that you bring it up. You've mentioned the ethics earlier, and indeed you are not always um, a vegan plant-based baker. What happened to you guys? How did that come up? What's your journey?
1: So I've been in kitchens since I was 13. So I always loved food. Uh, I've worked in fine dining kitchens. That's my sort of background um, for 25 years now. Uh, And I only went vegan about seven or eight years ago. There's not sort of a definite date that I know because it was a sort of transitional period. Natasha had gone vegan a year before me. Um, Mine was a health reason that pushed me into it. Um, I had cardiovascular issues, had a stent fitted in my aorta when I was 26. Wow. Um, So, for me, once I was on a lot of medication and had had that operation, it was a journey of sort of, okay, how can I improve my health? How can I get off this medication? Because there was no long term research into sort of, you know, someone in their late 20s being on it for 50 plus years. Uh, and then I just started to cut out dairy um and make that sort of movement with natasha's help um she was vegetarian for pretty much all her life so we always ate a heavy vegetarian diet so even though i cooked animal products at work at home it wasn't such a difficult transition well
0: natasha how did you come to a plant-based diet um well as ed said i was vegetarian
2: first i Kind of went vegetarian at the age of seven in in the sense that I didn't like meat and I didn't want to eat meat and then people started to tell me oh that means you're vegetarian and then I sort of embraced that label because you know then it was a clear indicator to people of what I liked and what I didn't like um and then it was actually when we moved to Canada in 2013 I ended up uh working at the ski school and I thought I was going to be Helping instructors on ski lessons as a ski school support staff member, but actually on my first day, I was taken to a kitchen and told I was going to be the first cook, and had to cook for um, eight hundred ski instructors and kids, and um, with a little team of nineteen-year-olds to help me. And this wow. is because apparently I had the most uh, kitchen and hospitality experience. I mean, I had the most work experience out of anyone, let alone in a kitchen, and so. This was actually the first time in my life I ever had to cook meat um, I took on the job I wasn't that comfortable with with cooking meat but for me at the time it was like I'm here for a season I'm gonna learn how to snowboard I'm here to have a good time there's a good social scene with this kind of job um and it was my my sort of my focus was on having a good time and I wasn't really consciously I was kind of Creating a dissonance between what I really felt as my ethics and and what I was doing for work, so I sort put a barrier there. But at the same time, I started to look at what is this stuff I'm cooking? Like, what what exactly is a wiener anyway? And I would uh, read the labels. Yeah, <laughs> I'd read the labels of foods that I was giving to like five year old children, and um, quite shocked to to read what the ingredients were. I remember even the mac and cheese was like over 100% of your sodium intake for like quite a small portion. So I was really not comfortable serving children these unhealthy foods. Regardless of whether you're into eating meat or not, the food is completely unhealthy. You know, the, the stats are on the back of it. You can't deny it. And so at the same time, this juice bar opened at the bottom of the mountain called Naked Sprout. And I would go there after work every day and have a green juice just before they closed. And it was sort of almost like I was cleansing myself of all the disgusting stuff I had been cooking at the ski school. And by the end of the season, I had these very two different communities in my life. I had the ski school folks. Now, the ski instructors were eating this crap day and night because they would take home the leftovers. And for them, it was free food. So there was basically a diet of wieners and mac and cheese. And you know by the end of the season they were depressed they were spotty they felt like and looked like they'd put on a little bit of weight and then down at the bottom of the mountain there were these radiant beauties that were glowing and they said to me Tash what are you doing at the end of the ski season and i said well i'll off to work on um organic vegetable farms with ed for the, for a few months they said well when you come back you should come and work here so i just thought okay yeah fine so i got this job at this juice bar and the lady that owned it said to me right, you're going to be the uh, raw vegan chef and you're in charge of the salad bar and all the raw desserts that we make. And I was kind of like, yeah, okay. I mean, I just learned in my career to say yes to everything and smile. Yeah, great. Okay. Yeah. And then I'm, Sure. no nothing's a problem. You know, number one employee over here. And then I was like, inside, I'm like, what the hell am I going to make? I don't know anything about raw vegan food. And so I started researching recipes and, uh, watching. There wasn't too much around at that time. This was 2014. There's a lot more available now. I would say the market is actually saturated with vegan cookbooks and food blogs and influencers, which is wonderful. At the time it was a little bit harder, but I started experimenting and then because I was eating it at home and at work, there's this natural journey now into like learning more about veganism. Some documentaries came out, Cowspiracy, What the Health, Earthlings. I was watching all this and very quickly got with the program. And once you know better, you do better. And I didn't want to go back to eating dairy or uh, meat. Uh, Not that I ever ate meat, but I didn't want to eat any of that kind of food ever again. And I, I turned around to Ed. And once I made this decision and I said, I'm actually a committed vegan now and I don't want any animal products in the house this is my sanctuary um there's enough of that going on outside the door but this is my home my temple and i don't want any of that in the house and he was a bit taken aback um but essentially he (laughs) he loves me and he wanted to make me happy and he's okay right and you know for him at the time he was still going to the restaurant and cooking meat and stuff like that so it wasn't it wasn't like a he wasn't ever going to eat meat again at that point it was just kind of what we were doing at home and then gradually he started to get with the program and I think I might have got him to watch some documentaries along the way and um very soon he was on his own journey of going vegan as well it took a little bit of time so for anyone out there that has a non-vegan partner like just be patient and encourage keep making them food making them watch things
0: you don't have to say too much It's probably better not to say too much, even. Um, according to my non-scientific uh, sociological study on the topic, uh, it takes about two years to for, for part, you know, plus or minus a year, probably is the range, for, for partners to come around. And Yeah, oh, I'd, I'd say that's that. great.
1: Yeah, it was uh, probably just over a, a year, a year and a half. So mm. your study is correct, I would say. <laughs> it was, I, I just had that mindset, you know, I would eat it for special occasions. And if everyone did that, then we would be in a better place. But then, like Natasha said, the more you know, you know, the more you want to grow with it. And it became animal ethics. And it's like, well, no one, no human or sentient being wants to be killed. So it was, it was a journey. Um, and then just became so started at health. I always called myself an environmentalist and an animal lover, but how can you call yourself an animal lover if you're, you know, eating them? So for me, it just sort of, all fell into place gradually it wasn't even Natasha forcing me it was her like she said just being patient making delicious food and knowing that you didn't have to forfeit or give anything up um and then really and then that sourdough journey came into play I'd already been making sourdough and it sort of again organically just sort of fell into place
0: that's just beautiful and at what point did you decide to open bread in Whistler?
1: So in 2016, um, so I was pretty, pretty new to calling myself a vegan, started making bread at the restaurant I worked at as sous chef. Um, And it started just by, like Natasha mentioned, we went to the island, Vancouver Island, and worked on farms. I had experience making sourdough and we had extra time. We only had to work on the farm for six hours a day. And in exchange, we got our board and food from, from the farmers and the families that we stayed with. And so I thought, well, this is a perfect time for me to make a sourdough starter and, and bake two loaves every couple of days and share that with the family that we were staying with, which they love. Um, so I was carrying, you know, traveling around for two months with a sourdough starter, brought it back to Whistler, um, to my job. We came back to our, well, I went back to the same job that I'd worked the winter before, started the bread program at the restaurant. And was making sourdough on my days off and sharing with friends and our yoga teacher um, and exchanging bread, sourdough for for yoga classes, which was great. Um, but obviously people smelt bread in the classes <laughs> and heard about Ed's bread, which it just, again, the name just came about. I'm Ed and I made bread. So <laughs> um, people were like, we want to buy this. So the idea came from there really to rent the kitchen that I worked at make the bread on a Wednesday, put it in the fridge, work my shift. Um, And then on Thursday, people, I'd bake it in the morning and customers would come and pick it up. And I had a little brown book and it was all just done on trust. Everyone got the same loaf, one, two, five loaves, depending on how many they wanted. And they would just put their name down uh, for the following week. Um, And it just grew from there. The first week we did 30 loaves and then 50 and then 100. And then after about a year of doing that every week, um, I was up to about 150 loaves, um, still using the same equipment. So kind of was getting to that point where it was becoming quite difficult, multiple batches through the mixer because I could only mix 10 loaves at a time. Um, so it's kind of outgrew the equipment and, the, and at that point the restaurant were like, we kind of want our sous chef back. And the customers were now saying, You should open a bakery. There's nothing like this in Whistler. So again, it was organically like the next step. We sort of talked more and we said, okay, what what do we want to do? Do we want to set up our own business? Um, By that point, we'd both been vegan for a couple of years or longer. Um, So we were like, let's go for it. We sold our house in the UK and we went all in and opened um, the bakery as it is now in Creekside. And that was five years ago. So, <laughs> That's it's a uh, great story. Yeah,
0: who knew? I don't that, think the customers yeah.
1: knew at that point that it was going to be vegan because we were only making sourdough and it was naturally all vegan anyway. We didn't have to even let the customers know. um And then it cu- came came the point when Natasha was like, "I, I want to invest in this as well, but well, be- no, being
2: a vegan." Actually, I didn't think I was going to be that involved in the beginning. <laughs> Um, but then it quickly became apparent that Ed couldn't do this on his own. And, um, I ended up giving up my teaching career and committing to the bakery, um, as well. And so, yeah, I don't think there's so much work that goes into launching a food and beverage business. Um, and in a ski town, we have extra challenges with seasonal staff and seasonal tourism. Um, so there's a, so much work that has to go into everything and you have to be really on top of your finances and things like that recruitment as well. So I don't think Ed really could have pulled it off on his own. Um, because he is so, he's so involved in the kitchen production of the, of the products that there's not much time for him to spend on other aspects of the business. So I'm really glad that I did step into that role, um, and help me too <laughs> for the <laughs> record. I think Ed said to me after the first week, like, I'm so glad you're here. I couldn't do this on my own. Um, And we've, yeah, we've come a long way since then. Um, And now written a cookbook together. So it's been a great journey. And again, the cookbook, we never had that. It wasn't in the business plan to write a cookbook, but, but Penguin approached us. And it's not the sort of opportunity you say no to, really. So we decided to step into that. And. Each each bit of our journey really has presented itself to us. Uh, we've just kind of stepped into it. We've never really gone out looking for, hey, I've got a business idea. Let's open a bakery. Let, who's crazy enough to open a vegan bakery in a ski resort? I mean, seriously.
1: But I think at the same point, I don't, I don't put it down to luck that we've had these, you know, we talk about it so free and easy, but it's all from hard work. You know, it has come from, you know, putting in those extra hours and increasing our production with demand in the early days, you know, I could have just said, no, i I only make 50 loaves, I want to keep it easy, but I never wanted to turn anyone down. And I wanted to share this, you know, organic handmade product with our community, and it's always been community focused, what can we do? And it's only now getting to sort of year seven. That we've been like, you know what, sometimes we have to say no to some things for our own personal sort of health and well-being. Um, but to get to that stage, we've had to say yes a lot.
0: <laughs> it is so much hard work, but it's just beautiful. And to hear you talk so passionately about it and conveying that really, yes, food is love. You know, it, it, I, it, I've read before, you know, food is not love, but talking about, you know, a box of Oreo cookies to fill in a gap in your heart. But lovingly handmade sourdough bread is love. And even is more it? so if everything around it is plant-based and vegan. I find this so beautiful. Before we part, I want to ask you one last question. So you are running a fully vegan plant-based degree in a ski town and it's working. What? advice what suggestions would you make for conventional bakeries of similar size you know like not i'm not talking about the the giants of the world but like other local bakeries how can we get them to make more plant-based options available if it's as easy as we were talking about
1: i think it's being aware that you don't realize how much money you're losing or how many customers you're losing by not being inclusive our thing has always been everyone eats plants we can't cater to celiacs because we mill flour and it's airborne but outside of that um, we include everyone to our bakery and we want everyone to feel welcome and have a choice in what they eat and i think it really saddens us when we go to other bakeries and there's either no option or just one option, and they categorize sort of vegan and gluten free in the same box. <laughs> and I think it's changing that mindset, being more open to, you know, making products that everyone can enjoy um, and having it as a default, you know, all, all our cake, cakes are vegan. And then you're going to definitely see an increase in sales because you might not see the demand. But that's because vegans, plant-based, plant-curious people aren't even coming to your premises because now they can look at your social media or reviews. Or your menu. Or your menu. Everything's online and out there. So just because you don't see the demand, it's because those people do their research or they tell their friends or, you know, things like that. So I think it's just putting it out there, testing it, and you'll see I'm sure an increase in sales and I know that because when I first went vegan at the restaurant I incorporated there was four desserts on the menu three of them we went uh, we went vegan with them and the dessert sales went up 75%. So all these people that were just didn't want to eat eggs, didn't want to eat dairy, they might not associate being vegan or plant-based for they're cutting out dairy, they're on a journey of themselves and the owner again, not vegan, was very happy because it increased sales. So that's an example right there.
2: And further to that, there's a lady in Copenhagen, Heather Landex, who's an allergy food safety specialist. And she's written a book um, that she got 50 experts to contribute to. And in her book about, I think it's called, inclusivity is the new exclusivity or something like that and um in there she actually has some stats and she believes that you're leaving 15 to 20 percent of revenue on the table if you're not having an inclusive menu for allergies um and vegan so vegan encompasses a lot of the allergies you know shellfish and eggs and dairy and, and maybe meat some people are allergic to different meats but um also nuts and soy and all the other allergens that are, are out there so the the research indicates that if you have a group of people and one of them is vegan or has a dairy allergy then that group are going to go somewhere where the lowest common denominator can eat so there might be six people one of them's vegan they'll all go to the bakery that has the vegan option um so actually sales Will increase on all your products if you have vegan options um, in that case. And actually, another person that I know in the vegan space, Katrina Fox, is um, a vegan journalist in Australia. She interviewed, I think it was one of the head guys at KFC when they brought out a plant based chicken wing. And she said, Does this mean you're going to eliminate, you know, chicken wings? Now you've got the plant based one, we've got the substitute, we're going to take off the chicken. And they were quite honest and they said, no, this is strictly to bring in more profit because they saw the sales of meat go up. Even when they have ve- they bring out vegan options because the groups come in. Whereas if, if you go to a, um, a vegan-only cafe because there's one vegan in the group, everyone's going to eat vegan. So that's another point I'd like to make to people is try and support the vegan businesses as much as you can because the sales and profits go up all across the board when non-vegan places have vegan options. So it's a double-edged sword because as much as we want other businesses to have vegan options for us, um, it actually brings them more profit as well, which a lot of people don't realize. But that's what like these leaders at the big fast food chain say, that they see their profits go up. So it's about being inclusive for the business owners. It's about making more money. And that's really the only way that you can talk to these um business owners about having more options and farmers as well about converting from animal agriculture to plant agriculture it's like you got to talk to them about the bottom line because that's really all they're ultimately interested in so um for us it works you know we found that the people with allergies especially tell other people with allergies like it's such great word of mouth advertising um we have people come in the bakery and say Our coffee shop's the only place that they can have a coffee in because some people are allergic to airborne dairy on the steam wand coming off the espresso machine. Um, So it's great because we're the only place they can come to and they're going to tell anyone else that they know. And for sure, they know other people because like people will attract like people. Um, And so all come to us. You know, we're the only safe place
0: to get a coffee. So brilliant. We can just own that niche going. Plant-based is never a bad idea. And supporting our local plant-based vegan businesses and heart-based entrepreneurs is always the right thing to do. I'm so glad you were here today. I'm excited to uh, use your book to uh, enhance my own baking journey. I'm committed this year to baking more of my kids' snacks. And so I will be working with you and sharing more of on Facebook. Thank you so much for being here today.